In preparation for our reading from our sermon text in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9 today, will you turn first of all in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, the third chapter. Proverbs 3. I'll be reading verses 11 to 18 before we turn to Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 46. Proverbs 3, verses 11 to 18. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof, for whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding, for its profit is better than the profit of silver and its gain than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. Now we come to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning at verse 46. And an argument arose among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, this is the one who is great. And John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him, because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Amen. With our passage this morning, the Lord's intended retirement ministry to his twelve disciples comes to a rather disappointing end, doesn't it? That intentional retreat from the crowds of Galilee began back in verse 10 of this chapter, right after the return of the newly minted apostles from their respective preaching tours throughout Galilee. They make their report, and then Jesus took them just as quietly as he could eastward across the Jordan River into the region of Bethsaida. That was his objective. But he's not a private person anymore, is he? Everyone wants to know where Jesus is going and when he's going to get there and where he's going to be staying when he does. So the word got out and hundreds of Galileans followed him across the river. And he welcomed and taught and even fed them, which was uh, a crowd by now of thousands of uninvited dinner guests just outside the city limits of Bethsaida. He does that. He welcomes them. But bear in mind that he's been trying to get away. He's been trying to get some private time with his disciples. 
So then, after the feeding of the 5,000, he's taken the 12 way up north, up to the very headwaters of the Jordan River near Caesarea Philippi. And there he ascertained from them, first of all, who the crowds of people say he is, and then more to the point, much more to the point, who they, his disciples, say he is. And together this peripatetic school of preaching the kingdom of God professed their unanimous view that Jesus, their master, is the one and only, long-awaited Christ of God. That's who he is. They agreed to it. And then he began to teach them just exactly what that's going to mean for him and for them and for all of us who follow later. A week passed from the day of that confession of apostolic faith in Jesus as the Christ. And they're still way up north in the region of Mount Hermon. Then one night while praying is transfigured before three of them who see with their own eyes, hear with their own ears the law and the prophets and the heavenly Father himself strengthen Jesus for the suffering he's soon going to undergo in Jerusalem as the Christ of God. Wondrous things are unfolding before the eyes of these young disciples. Wondrous things are falling on their ears even as they make their way down the mountain and they find yet another needy crowd waiting for them, the wonders of his power and mercy never cease. But no matter how often, no matter how plainly and directly Jesus warns them to let these words sink down deeply within them, they're just not catching on to that part about his coming betrayal, his being delivered into the hands of men. They're just not getting it. Because so far, up to this point, following Jesus has been, relatively speaking, a picnic. It's been a walk in the park. And to think of following our Rabbi Jesus, the very Christ of God he is, to think of discipleship to this great man and teacher in any other way, under any other terms, is just too hard a thing to consider. It's unimaginable that he could suffer and die. It's unimaginable that this lovely arrangement that we presently have, teacher and students, could ever change. Looking back over there, few weeks spent up north, it seems as though the Lord's main teaching objectives for his disciples during this retirement ministry were two in number. Two main learning goals. By the conclusion of this extended off-site training conference, these 12 disciples have got to understand, number one, exactly who I am, and number two, exactly what I must do. They've got to come to understand, in other words, the person and work of Christ. And, beloved, the person and work of Jesus Christ is precisely what you and I have to understand as well. If we're going to call ourselves his disciples, if we're going to call ourselves Christians. Because this gospel of the kingdom isn't about social work. It's certainly not about politics. It's about Jesus. 
It's about our king, his person and work. Churches and ministries that focus their long-term message on anything else, whether it's money management or how to be a good dad or making your life the best life ever or anything else but the person and work of Jesus Christ, that, my friends, that is not a church. It's a social agency. Because the church is about Christ. Specifically, the church is about the biblical Christ, the Christ who suffers and is rejected of men and dies and on the third day rises again. Let this sink in, he said up in verse 44. In fact, he's probably been saying it again and again because it wasn't sinking in. So they make their way south toward Capernaum again. Because there's some business he has to wrap up there before he sets his face still farther south toward Jerusalem. It's a long trip from way up north to Capernaum, and they have hours and hours to talk along the way. So what do you talk about when you've just seen the things you've seen? When you've heard the things you've heard, what do you talk about as you walk by the way? Well, some things just had to be burning in their hearts. No one knew about the transfiguration on the mountain, for instance, except for Peter, James, and John. That is still classified information at this point. That was an incredible moment of glory to be shared with no one else, but it's fixed itself in the memories of those three who were there. But as for the rest, they'd all confessed their faith in Jesus. They'd all said he's the Christ of God. They'd all seen his casting out the demon and healing the boy at the foot of the mountain. Incredible takeaways just waiting to be taken away from the training conference of the past few weeks. Incredible lessons to ponder and discuss so what are the wonderful things concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ that they talk about as they cover the miles stretching from Caesarea Philippi on down to Capernaum? Well, it seems some of the twelve, at least, purposely fell out of the march. They lagged behind Jesus along the way. They fell back. They fell out of earshot because some of them had some personal business of their own. They wanted to settle. Verse 46. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. Now if we bring in Mark's testimony and put it alongside Luke's, we discover the detail that they've actually arrived in Capernaum by the time this shameful little secret comes out into the open. Jesus may have been out, out of earshot along the way, but he's a good teacher. He understands his students. He knows how their minds work. He knows their needs. He knows their distractions. And he knows the reasonings of their hearts. So they reach Capernaum, probably Peter's house, and he asks them, So, what were you discussing along the way? And they tell him frankly, confirming what he knew already. And this becomes what's commonly called these days a teachable moment. He responds. 
gently, helpfully, and in a memorable way, he responds. What does he do? What does he say? Here's what he does. He takes a child. It might have been Peter's own little child. Or maybe a niece or nephew or a neighbor child who happened to be there in the house, whoever it was. He takes this child and sets him beside him and says to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now there's nothing obviously great about this particular child as men typically measure greatness. We don't know his name. We don't even know whether it was a he or a she. It's a child, an ordinary child. The heritage of the Lord certainly made in his image, but besides that, an ordinary child. But here's the point. This anonymous little child represents me, says Jesus. At least in this illustration he does, because receiving this child in the name of Christ is to receive the Christ himself. And with him, the kingdom of God. So greatness in this kingdom isn't the walnut-paneled office. It's not the station in life you manage to attain by the sweat of your own brow. Be on guard against the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. Be on guard against the leaven of Herod. Be on guard against the vain attractions of political office or an Ivy League education, or of this inexplicable drive some people have to become a prominent feature in the 24-hour news cycle. Do you really need to be on everyone's radar all the time? Do you need to be among the movers and the shakers? Do you need to make waves? Power and fame. It's not that these things are necessarily bad in themselves, but as Solomon himself knew, Solomon who had plenty of both of them, they're vanity. These things that tend to impress men as proofs of greatness carry absolutely no weight with God. To spend your life striving after them is to strive after the wind. If it's true greatness you're after, if it's greatness in God's kingdom, you just won't find it there. Greatness in God's kingdom is a matter completely independent of those circumstances. If it's greatness you want, look instead to this child I've just called over to stand next to me. That's greatness in God's kingdom. To be called and to come and to stand with Jesus. That's greatness. After weeks of intensively training these 12 young men just as far from the crowds as he could possibly get them, what a crashing disappointment it must have been to see how little of his teaching had actually sunk into their heads. 
The Christ of God himself is going to suffer. He's going to be rejected by men. He's going to die. The Christ is. And you're worried about who's greatest among you? You're condemned prisoners, all of you. You're lining up for your own execution in the Roman arena or on your own crosses as followers of Jesus Christ and you're trying to figure out a pecking order? You're trying to figure out who goes first? Are you actually drawing up organizational flowcharts on your way to the gallows? How gently Jesus reproves us when we disappoint and grieve him. Because the fact of the matter is, friends, Jesus said none of those caustic, sarcastic things I've just said. The servant of the Lord won't break a bruised reed. He won't quench a dimly burning wick. And he doesn't berate them, as you or I might, for their self-centered folly. Instead, what he does is gently take a little child and gently set him beside him and gently make a few comments about human greatness. And with these gentle words, gently offered, the lesson on greatness is over. Class dismissed. Except for one thing. When Jesus used that phrase, in my name, whoever receives a child like this, in my name, when he used that phrase, it apparently set something off in John's mind, a recent incident. Jesus had just said, whoever receives this child, in my name, which sent John's train of thought down a completely different track. After all, it's uncomfortable to be shown one's faults. It's uncomfortable to be shown your faults even so gently. And so he says, John does, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. The faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who follow a dying man to his cross and grave, we do well to guard ourselves against pride, as we've seen. Pride is absolute nonsense to dying men. It has no place among us. Nor does parochialism, which is the party spirit, the spirit of us against them, doesn't belong here, doesn't belong in the church. So somewhere along the way, probably on this latest trip to Capernaum, while we twelve were all strung out along the road, some of us lagging way behind the rest, we came across this person casting out demons, and he was doing it in your name. And notice this, he wasn't just trying to cast them out. He was successfully casting them out. He was successfully liberating these poor, vulnerable victims of the powers of darkness. Because your name, Lord, represents power, holiness, redemption, freedom. At the entrance of such light as your name represents, the darkness flees away. 
The problem is we didn't recognize him. We had absolutely no idea who this man was, so naturally we went up to him and said, <clears throat> uh, Excuse us, but that name you're using happens to be a registered trademark of the kingdom of God, of which we happen to be the trustees. We tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Beloved, let this sink into our ears as well. Let it shape our thinking. Let it shape our speaking. Let it shape our doing. In this glorious kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, parochialism is just as foreign, just as out of place as pride is. David says as much in the 133rd Psalm, Behold how good a thing it is, and how becoming well, when those that brethren are delight in unity to dwell. Let's cherish the good discussions we have with our brethren across denominational lines. Let them edify us, let them teach us, let them even reprove and correct us, and we them. Whatever the outcome for the good of our respective churches and the redemption of the lost, let all that passes between the bearers of Christ's great name be said and done in love. Do not hinder him, says Jesus our King. Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Amen. May God enlarge our vision of his glorious reign among men. Let us build walls wherever we must and bridges wherever we can. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near.